Welcome to Healthcare Unfiltered. This is a podcast that I host, and my name is Shadi Nabhan. I'm a hematologist and medical oncologist, and I have interest in all aspects of healthcare delivery, treatment, leadership, mentorship, and policy. I appreciate your support to this podcast and to you listening to this podcast. I also appreciate uh, you tuning in today. It is really a pleasure for me today to host Dr. Fadlo Khoury. Fadlo is currently the president of the American University of Beirut. He is a hematologist and medical oncologist. He has had an extensive, illustrious career in academic medicine that he will share with us. He's an expert in immunotherapy, lung, head and neck cancer, and really uh, has been the AUB president for the past several years. I have invited, I've thought about uh, asking Fadlo to come on the show after I seen uh, an announcement from the Office of Communications of the AUB that was released on August 14th, 2021. Pretty much, I'm not going to read the announcement, but it stated that the American University of Beirut Medical Center is facing imminent disaster due to the threat of a forced shutdown starting the morning of Monday, August 16th, as a result of fuel shortages. Following this, uh, and the announcement goes on and on, but I also saw a lot of pictures and uh, nurses and physicians on social media, on TV channels, asking for help because they don't have the resources needed, the medications that they actually need to administer to patients in order to save their lives. They didn't have electricity for the ventilators for people who are on a ventilator. Then, you know, I really thought it is really important to reach out to the uh, leadership of the American University of Beirut and understand what actually happened. What led to this? Uh, as you all know, sometimes uh, Beirut, uh, Lebanon, the Middle East is a very politicized region. It's charged with uh, political conflicts, with religious conflicts, and all of these could play a role uh, in how academic institutions, hospitals, medical centers, and colleges are actually influenced. And that could be a problem because uh, we really could stand to lose lives uh, due to unnecessary conflicts that we probably face. So uh, with that in mind, I wanted to ask Dr. Fadlo Khoury to join me on Healthcare Unfiltered and to share his experience during that disastrous time but also to tell us about his career, his journey. I mean, needless to say, I don't think you go to medical school and uh, you wake up in the morning and think you're gonna be the president of the largest American university outside of the US. Yet he is currently the president of the AUB and I wanna to get to know from him what he does every day, what his strategy, what his plan, how does he view the competition? And uh, you know, how was the career transition? It's not always easy to leave the United States and go back to the Middle East, an area that is very charged with conflicts. So I appreciate you tuning in. I promise that you're going to enjoy this episode with Dr. Fadlo Khoury, the president of the American University of Beirut. And before I air the episode that we taped on September 7, 2021, uh, I would like to ask you to uh, check out my YouTube channel, Chadi Nabhan and Healthcare Unfiltered. Uh, 
subscribe to the YouTube channel and uh, rate the shows that you see. Do not forget to rate this podcast, subscribe to the podcast, refer a friend or a colleague to the podcast as well. Without further ado, Dr. Fadlo Khoury, president of the AUB on Healthcare Unfiltered podcast. Well, folks, I'm really, uh, truly honored uh, today to host uh, Dr. Fadlo Khoury, who I have always looked up to. Actually, I've, I've known uh, about Fadlo, about Dr. Khoury for a while because he, uh, I told him this when I met him a few weeks ago, uh, he has rejected a lot of my manuscripts. I'm, I'm still heartbroken about this when, uh, when he was here, but we'll talk about that, Fadlo. Uh, Fadlo currently is in Beirut. He holds a very prominent position he's going to tell us about, and I've asked him to come on the show because there's so much to talk about. So Fadlo, welcome to Healthcare Unfiltered. I can tell you I'm very humbled and honored that you are going to take time of your busy schedule to be with us uh, on the show. I promise you a lot of folks are looking forward to hearing this and getting to know you and, and your post. But Let's start by uh, telling us about uh, yourself uh, from when you were in the U.S. and and how did you end up uh, at the AUB? Well, thank you, Shadi. So first of all, I'm honored and flattered to be with you. Now I'm the ex-editor-in-chief of Cancer. I think I'll get that, that for a few more years, but uh, I'm sure I've made many mistakes. So my apologies to everyone. Okay, so I, I actually was born in the U.S., but grew up mostly in Lebanon, back and forth. After my sophomore year at AUB, at the American University of Beirut, where I currently am, I came to the U.S. for a, what I thought would be a junior year abroad at Yale, uh, because my brother, Ramsey, who is cl the closest friend I've ever made, other than my wife, uh, was moving as a freshman. So I moved, and it was 82. 283, and things got worse in Lebanon. I enjoyed being at Yale. I stayed there. And as they say in Arabic, I know. the wind blows in directions that the ships may not desire. So I stayed. I went to medical school at Columbia. I did my residency at the Boston City Hospital, my fellowship at Tufts New England Medical Center. During medical school, I had intended to be mostly bench-based physician scientist with a light clinic. But I found out during residency at the Boston City Hospital, I loved clinical medicine, loved taking care of patients, still enjoy it, but don't get to do as much of it. Uh, from there, I went from Tufts, I went to MD Anderson, which was, other than marrying my wife, the best career decision I've ever made. I got to work with Ki Hong and Dong Shin and Jin Su Lee, Meryl Peace, later Roy Herbst, Bonnie Glisson, some amazing people. And uh, I was able to take care of patients, get to be a very competent, capable clinical physician and a clinical investigator. And just when things were going very well, I left. I went to, to Emory to, to help build the Winship Cancer Institute with Jonathan Simons and Otis Brawley and others, where uh, things got even better in 2008 when I got to recruit an old friend in Wally Curran to be cancer uh, chair of radiation oncology and eventually cancer center director. So I'd 13 fantastic years at Emory after seven great years at MD Anderson. I had the best scientific partner I've ever had or ever will have in high-end Fu, and some other great scientific partners, Xiong Sun, Adam Marcus, uh, among them, ways out. But 
what I really enjoyed was the opportunity at Emory to take care of patients, lead a department, get more administrative experience as a research dean in the medical school, and help build the cancer center. So you really get to do everything. You do research, you do patient care, you recruit people who are much better than you. I'm talking about people like Suresh Ramalingam and Tofika Wanakoko and Ruth Oregon, uh, and help mentor some of the great people who are already there, like uh, Sagar Lonial, others, Basila Reyes, there's too many people to mention. And, you know, Mary Jo Lekowitz, a great uh, physician, uh, educator, role model for people, Amy Langston, a great transplant. But after 13 years of doing it, I was, I thought I'd made the decision to stay. And when I got on the board of the American University of Beirut, they opened up the search for the president and I got drafted. I don't know how to say it in a better way. I, my parents were educated at the AUB, my grandparents, my great-grandfathers on my uh, mother's side, both were educated at the university. It's a magical university. And this was definitely not a career decision where you progress and you say, gee, you know, what would I like to do next? I'd like to lead leading American university abroad, right in the middle of unstable Lebanon in a Middle East that's been in big trouble and getting worse since the late 70s. Uh, but I love this job because it's a chance to create hope and to empower young people and to collaborate with new scholars and see them emerge in their own way uh, and a chance to help provide hope for the peoples of our region where you and I came from. We really hope is a rare commodity these days as we'll talk. So I've, I've enjoyed this. This is the beginning of my seventh year as president. I'd been a department chair for almost a decade, an associate dean for five years, an executive associate dean for eight months. I was the shortest in office executive associate dean in, of research in the history of Emory University. I'm not sure that's a great distinction. Got the chance to edit a journal, but this is a whole new ball game. You know, you're, you're concerned with undergraduate education, with fiscal sustainability of the institution with progress in research and patient care. We have the major hospital of the region. So it's, a, it's an all-in job and I'm enjoying it. So you've been the president of AUB for seven years? This is the beginning of my seventh year since September of 2015. So this, yeah, six, six years plus. So, um, you know, Fadla, I mean, we, we know that no matter what, anytime you start a new job uh, at the time, there are certain things that you may be expecting and uh, they, you know, they're, they're similar to your expectations that others are not. What would you say as you started being a president of AUB, what, was, what were you surprised about the most that you just didn't realize it's happening and uh, maybe something that was not positive and another thing that was positive? So I'll start with the positive. Look, I knew this is a great university, but what was an inspiring, I don't want to say surprise, but what exceeded my expectations is just how good the faculty, students, and staff are here. Just how dedicated, especially the staff and so many of the faculty are to the mission of the university and how smart and brave and creative the students are. So this student, the, the, this university, which is 155 years old, Chadi, if you look at capital creation outside the U.S., because the U.S. is a whole different market, 
The last survey I saw, this university is eighth in the world, XUS, in wealth X. So this university creates leaders, you know, more than a hundred prime ministers, you know, deputy prime ministers, presidents, heads, so state or senior leaders, including the former president of Afghanistan, the founding president of Sudan and Syria, uh, founding presidents of Sudan and Syria, 11 Jordanian prime ministers, leaders, the people who founded the largest construction, many of the major oil and gas companies uh, in the region, but also some people who are, uh, you know, against uh, uh, capitalism and against the way that society redistributes wealth in an unfair way. So that was one of the pleasant surprises, just how committed people are, how good they were. And that's the reason we still have a faculty and staff in the terrible situation we, we see Lebanon in. That's one of the reasons we have a fantastic incoming class of students, despite everything. Uh, one of the, I would say, unpleasant surprises is just how politicized the college campuses are, in particular by some of the faculty. And of course, social media doesn't make that easier. So <laughs> passing innuendo and, and rumors rather than come to you and talk to you straight to your face. So that was, a, that was an unpleasant surprise, I would say. But I think most college presidents would say, you know, if they're being honest, that's a bit of an unpleasant surprise, the way folks use uh, less direct methods to communicate with you. Uh, they send you a message in a way that uh, uh, you kind of know who it is, but you don't dare ask or confirm, uh, nor should you. It's unfortunate because I like to think that every place I've ever been, I've had an open door, uh, but it's more than offset by the quality of good people and their inspiring example. And, you know, a lot of that's on me. I probably should make sure that it's easier to come to my office and people are less scared. Sure. Called, uh, we call that subtweets. They subtweet. Uh, but uh, how, how big is the university, Fadlo? How, how many students across uh, all disciplines? And do you have uh, colleges and uh, uh, graduate uh, programs across all disciplines? Or So we, we have uh, about almost 8,300 students undergraduate, graduate, medical. We have seven colleges, seven. So arts and sciences, medicine, nursing, engineering and architecture, public health, agriculture and food sciences and school of business. Uh, the balance is about two thirds undergraduate or a little more, and then the rest are graduate or, or medical. The premier medical school in the region we currently are down about 210 faculty members because of the catastrophic situation in Lebanon that was, and this these losses were really accentuated by the August 4th explosion. I think the fourth largest non-nuclear explosion in the last hundred plus years, uh, but also the sense of despair in Lebanon. Uh, we still have 600 faculty members in the professorial track and a few hundred more uh, between uh, senior lecturers, instructors, part-timers. They're all talented in their own way. Of course, uh, not everyone is equal, equal, but we have some of the preeminent scholars in certain areas, phenomenal history department, we have incredible folks who do environmental chemistry and engineering. Uh, we have other inorganic and organic chemists, three of the best theoretical physicists in the world, 
including arguably the greatest living Arab uh, theoretical physicists in Ali Shamsuddin, great philosophers, and a superb medical center with outstanding physicians. Um, basic science research, we have a handful of incredible uh, researchers and uh, the staff, which people don't talk about, is, is just incredible. I mean, you have people who've come in uh, during the protests they, without electricity, without gas, they come to this university and to its hospital every day, to its medical center, and they give more than you would think uh, anyone could. So total, we have 5,800 faculty and staff currently, uh, full and part-time, uh, maybe, sorry, closer to 5,700. And we, of those about 850 are faculty members and 8,000, almost 300 students. And then when you look, I'm, I'm curious, I mean, the AUB obviously brings probably a lot of people from all over the world. I mean, you know, you, you were born in the U.S. and you still did your um, some of your training and some of your education at the AUB. So um, is there like a breakdown how many uh, foreigners, what I mean by foreigners, non-Lebanese, are part of the AUB educational track? Yes. So... The, the high water mark was before 1974, in the late 60s, early 70s. Almost 65% of the students, close to 65%, were non-Lebanese. Now, with the advent of the Lebanese Civil War, which lasted 15 and a half years, from April of 75 to October of 90, that disappeared. You know, we in, in 1938, a survey shows that two-thirds of the, you know, they had students from 30-something countries, but two-thirds of the students were from Palestine. Mm -hmm. It's incredible. Now, the, our high, recent high-water mark was in 2019, before all hell started to break loose with the uprising and the forest fires in Lebanon, uprising, then COVID, and then economic collapse. Almost a quarter of our students were international, and 75% were Lebanese only. Uh, holders of only Lebanese passports. Now, of that quarter who's international, it's a little bit deceptive because a little over 6% are dual passport holders. So either Lebanese and something else, Syrian and something else, Palestinian and something else. But a quarter of your students being international is pretty yeah. good. Uh, we're less than that now. I estimate we're about 17 to 18%. And that will be harder to do uh, if Lebanon continues to deteriorate. Yeah, well, hopefully not. We're going to talk about that uh, because obviously this is part of the reason I reached out to you is um, how much I love Lebanon. And I was always wondering, um, how are you navigating everything happening? So we'll talk about that in a little bit. Uh, so so what, what's, a, what's a day in the life of an AUB president like? Like, what is it... Um, I know to the extent you could share, I mean, I, I'm sure there's a lot of meetings and so forth, but but what is it? What are the objectives? I mean, what do you want? What do you try to? Uh, is there a strategic plan? Is there something you want to achieve in five years? Is there something? And maybe, I don't know, when you interviewed for the job, if you interviewed, I presume the search committee said, you know, what do you want the AUB to be in the next five years? So how do you spend your day and what do you try to accomplish? Sure. So, yes, when I interviewed for the job, uh, I pointed out that AUB had a lot of the strengths it needed to be a truly outstanding university 
and that there were many factors in its control and some not so much. The ones not so much are the situation in Lebanon and the region, because that obviously uh, plays into it in many ways. The things that we could control and which we worked on and were successful at is restoring tenure, which the university had frozen for 33 years, and we've tenured 200 faculty members over the last four years. Um, and that's actually played a role in some of them staying, despite the circumstances, because they feel the university has invested in them. But at the same time, treating those who chose not to apply to tenure or senior faculty like professors uh, and who served AUB well or outstanding clinicians who didn't do research, treating them as equals, not having second class citizens. And I think that's been successful. I think the majority of the faculty do feel valued. I'd say the vast majority, if it was all of the faculty, then I think I fell asleep and woke up a dictator in this part of the world. The, the, to improve the student experience, and I think we had made significant improvements, first uh, in a number of areas. Uh, first of all, in enhancing mental health support, because we now know what a epidemic, uh, even before the pandemic, uh, mental health disease is, especially among those under the age of 30, but certainly even over it. Being better at, at job placement, making progress and reputationally, and being more excellent in research. So we did manage to raise the, the amount of funding the faculty did this by instituting tenure and letting them feel more assured we chose outstanding academic deans, made progress on building an outpatient, finished an outpatient clinical and academic center, and we're in the process of building a major hospital uh, extension when things started to go uh, the wrong way in this country. And so those are things that I laid out that we actually accomplished. Um, we also communicated more and better and got the alumni uh, and the board and the students, faculty and staff talking. You see that uh, the way I think of a college president is you're an interlocutor. You shouldn't be telling the board, oh, don't talk to the students and telling the students don't talk to the faculty. You should be bringing people together and trying to get out of the way. And so that I think was making progress until things started to worsen, but I'm happy to say it's making progress again, even online. We're arranging for more conversations, bringing the community together. Uh, I had said some time ago that the university should really consider whether it made sense to expand with a campus beyond Lebanon. That probably will happen in the next couple of years. Uh, and I'd said that before things got worse in Lebanon, because I don't think of AUB as a Lebanese university, and I don't think anyone should, right? I mean, you grew up uh, all of us grew up thinking of the, this being the great American university in the Middle East. But going back to the diversity issue, we went from having kids from 96 different countries, had a cup of coffee with Larry Bakow, the president of Harvard in August of 2019. And he had kids from, I believe, 85 different countries. It's pretty remarkable in this little country on this small campus, you know, with a hundredth of Harvard's endowment and hundreds of its, hundreds of its fame, we can get such uh, diversity and excellence. Working with good partners like the MasterCard Foundation and others, we've been able to get scholars 
particularly from sub-Saharan Africa and the rest of the world. So those are the things. When you ask me about a typical day, it depends on what day of the week. But every week I try to talk to, and I used to be meet physically for half day a week with students. I do have time for the faculty. And I try not to have any day where I'm just jammed with meetings. I mean, some days it happens because you need to think, you need to write, you need to strategize. Uh, but the human contact is important. And to not have so many meetings, you have to pick great leaders. And I've been very fortunate. This is the beginning of my, as I said, the I'm into the second year of my second term. Many of the people who were critical in my first term have moved on. Uh, but, you know, uh, exceptional deans of business and health sciences, among others, a very visionary dean of medicine. Um, and so now we have a, a new group, okay, a group that's, I think, better suited to lead in this challenging time to innovate in different ways. So, so is it usually a term? Is it like a five-year and then renewable five years? So is it, is it renewable forever or is it just two terms and that's it? Is, it, uh, is there like bylaws for that? So uh, most colleges have and universities have five-year terms for presidents. Some have three. Renewable ad infinitum. But the average president doesn't last much more than four to six years. And 10 is a, is, a, is, a, is a benchmark not many reach because, uh, you know, even if it's your vision that's being implemented at some point, someone else is better at adapting and modernizing and implementing that vision. Uh, when I came here, I said I could stay for three years and head back to the U.S. I could do five to 10 or, you know, I could do more but it would have to depend on an ongoing dialogue, not just with the board, but the community. Yeah. And um, uh, do you have a lot of the, the faculty members, especially maybe in the faculty of medicine, do you have a lot of US um, trained uh, physicians or uh, is part of, was, was part of your strategy ever to try to reach out to um, immigrants, whether it's Lebanese immigrants or Arab immigrants, and try to um, lure them in, let's say, recruit them into the AUB to be there? Yeah, no, that's always been a strategy that was started, to be fair, before me, the last three deans of medicine, um, Samir Najjar, Nadim Kurtas, and Mohammed Sayed, have all done a very good job recruiting top class people from the US and elsewhere. Uh, on average, I don't have the latest breakdown, but close to 80% of our physicians are American board certified. Um, vast majority have done the bulk of their training in the US, residency and or fellowship or both often. Um, some experience in the US or, or Europe is desirable. Very few of our faculty have done all of their specialization locally. Um, and that's always been an objective to have a higher percentage of US or top European trained faculty, not just in medicine, but across. Uh, I feel very fortunate that I, we've recruited a lot of help from William Zubi, the vice chair of the board for medical affairs, uh, Ray Sawaya, as our next dean of the faculty of medicine. Ray, of course, was chair of neurosurgery at MD Anderson for 28 years. He's from Latkia, from Syria originally, he went to medical school here. In the, in the US, you would call it Latakia. 
Okay. <laughs> um, but he is as accomplished a brain tumor neurosurgeon as there is in the world, won so many top awards and recognitions, but he's also a great human being, a great mentor, yeah. physician, scholar, and a very good friend of mine for more than a quarter of a century. Yeah. And, um, you know, when it comes to um, what you do with the AUB, um, you try, I mean, obviously you, you get a lot of probably funding and support from, from the U.S. Some of it philanthropy and some of it is the government like provides some funds, like the U.S. government provides some funds to support the AUB as well? Yes, it does. I mean, the U.S. government has been generous, uh, very generous with us, especially when things are difficult. Uh, uh, and that philanthropy from the U.S. government, those grants from the U.S. government become even more important as the Lebanese economy has contracted. So uh, that means that we went from having a total of $12.5 million in, in, in philanthropy, in, in government support, shall I say, for scholarship and other things when I arrived, uh, all the way to almost 30 million last year because of it. It's an extraordinarily difficult year. That's everything, including, you know, PPEs for COVID and medications. And that's become more important because our all-in budget in 2019 and projected for 2020 was about $610 million, including physicians' fees. And uh, that's, if you play it out to U.S., that's about the equivalent of a $3, 4000000000 billion budget in the U.S. If you average that patient volume, research, and everything else, but things are less expensive here, right? Uh, that $610 million has contracted to... Uh, an annual all-in budget of about 230 to 235 million, massive drop because of the collapse of the Lebanese pound. So that $30 million, which would have been 5% of our budget, you know, is 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 um, much more significant now. Yeah. And not to say that it'll be repeated, but we hope so. Philanthropy has been much more than that, obviously. Philanthropy has been incredible from the US, from Lebanon, from the Gulf and elsewhere. I think that's a very good segue, Fadlo, just for, you know, I mean, I've left uh, Syria now 30 years ago, so it's, it's been a long time. I go visit. I've visited Beirut many times. I, I love it. And uh, I obviously visit Damascus as well. But how do you, how do you, how are you able to navigate a political landscape where, that you don't have control over, right? I mean, you're trying to stay afraid of everything. And trying to maintain to the mission and get the educational aspect and build this new generation of, of folks. But let's face it, I mean, you know, the Middle East, like you said in the beginning, is such a highly charged region with politics, religion, conflicts, and so forth. And I, I mean, do you, I don't know, I, I, how do you, how are you able in, in your role, which is such a prominent role, I'm pretty sure you sometimes you just can't can't say I'm not going to discuss it. I mean, how do you navigate that? Sure. So, you know, I mean, I would say politicians are similar in different countries in some ways and different in other countries. Uh, here, the political forces are, I would say, more dangerous than the political forces in the U.S. or Western Europe or most countries in that, um, you know, they, 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 
they make less wise decisions and they are much more willing to tap into a, a, a dangerous brand of populism that I'm sorry, I'm going to say this, that our last president of the United States was willing to, to tap into. But he's an exception if you think of the recent history of, 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 of the US. Um, irrespective of politics left or right, you know, playing with people's emotion to the point of violence is, is not uncommon here, okay? So you have to be careful because these individuals, they have some supporters who believe anything they say, right? They'll say, the sky is pitch black and it'll be in the middle of the day and the sun will be shining and your supporters will believe it. And yet they're human beings in the final analysis who want to get their kids educated and their family cared for. And this is the best university in the hospital in the region, both. So the part where they're similar to other politicians is they love good publicity and they like to be heroes. What I've tried to do in my six years without getting myself or the university in danger is understand that there is a significant segment that is anti-American no matter what you do. And because you happen to be the president of the leading American institution of higher education abroad anywhere, not just in the Middle East, they're going to come after you. So you've got to depersonalize it and say, what do we need? What is good for the university from this relationship? Is it that we need to make clear that we need electricity and diesel fuel throughout our hospital or else we'll go out in public? So. They also, these politicians, they, um, they don't want bad publicity. And the worst publicity is when someone blames you for, for, for deaths, right? Um, so we've tried to not be too antagonistic, but be firm. Uh, it helps that I have no sympathy for any of the political parties in any of this region, and by this region, I'm saying the Levant. I have no affiliations, no sympathies. I think it's taken a while, but I believe it's quite clear now that I'm politically equidistant from all the political parties, which hasn't always been the case for university presidents or leaders, even at AUB, there's been a perception. Yeah. Uh, that allows me to say, look, these are the things we really need. They're good for everyone, including you, and if we fail, you're you're going to own it. Um, and so, how can we do this in a, a polite way? And by the way, no more photo opportunities. You know, I've, I said that publicly in a newspaper interview. I'm not going up to visit any of the leaders uh, because they don't help, and they're not making the big decisions for Lebanon. And I don't want them. I don't want to give them AUB's moral blanket so that they can say, well, look who's endorsing us. There has been a lot in the press lately over the past couple of months about the economic downturn in, in Lebanon. It, it's truly heartbreaking. Uh, as somebody who has been there um, so many times and, and, and just love the country. And, um, but one of the things that I saw uh, surfacing on media and outlets and on TV channels is how the economic downturn has really affected hospitals and patients. And I saw nurses and physicians pleading that they are unable to get drugs to treat cancer patients. And 
and some patients were dying because like you said electricity and the ventilators are not really working and, and just all of that part of me sometimes i always wonder how much of this is an exaggeration of the truth because let's face it sometimes media likes clicks and, and likes to exaggerate uh, reality but but i want to get the truth from you what was actually going on and 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 how do you even solve this like i mean you you can't be responsible for the complete collapse of the lebanese currency but yet your patients and your faculty and your students are paying a price how, what do you do and and tell us the truth so you know the university is is I believe well respected for in a number of areas and is seen as the hospital for the region. Nonetheless, uh, people are people and things get personal between them. And what happened about, a, uh, I want to say it'll be four weeks ago this coming weekend, is that we got to 60,000 gallons of uh, diesel at the American University of Beirut Medical Center, the outstanding medical center in the region. Uh, and our total reserves should be between four and 500,000. Now in a normal day in the summer with all the ICUs filled with COVID and other things, we burn through 50,000. Now we can probably cut that up to 30,000 if we did what we did, which is to shut off all air conditioning on campus, just keep you know, emergency power for key labs and other things. But the reality is there was a, sorry to call it a pissing match between several senior folks in different branches of the government. And this may have had something to do with the negotiations about government formation, but certainly the uh, resigned former prime minister, his government and these, uh, the central bank were uh, in a dispute as to what should be subsidized from fossil fuels. And we had been sounding the alarm for several days and we got involved when we had really, I would say less than two days left of fuel. And that Monday morning, we were informed by our team that 40 adults and 15 uh, kids would, would still be on respirators, most likely. And before we went public with our appeal to say, look, you know, these are the people whose lives are at risk, only a couple of ministers showed any responsibility. The rest weren't, were too busy to take my phone calls or the phone calls of our faculty members. So. Uh, we came very close, not just at AUB, at Maqasid Hospital, uh, one of the older hospitals in Lebanon had sounded the, the cry uh, about a week earlier. They no longer had materials for dialysis or fuel for power. And you have to uh, understand, Shadi, we in our medical center were getting four hours a day of government electricity, four hours, 20 hours a day we're burning diesel, which is a terrible thing for the environment. But that's the level of complete lack of responsibility that the various parties in this leadership uh, cascade got to. Um, I know that there's been a shortage of cancer medications, including at AUB. You know, I mean, the, the great irony is in February of 2018, I chaired a national committee that delivered a state-of-the-art cancer care set of guidelines surgery, medical oncology, uh, immunotherapy, less so radiation, but certainly where radiation is indicated across the diseases. And you fast forward three and a half years to summer of 2018, and most of these medications are almost 
impossible to get. You know, the immunotherapies, the most expensive medicines. Uh, in a country which, by the estimate of uh, some of the major UN agencies, 74% of people now are below the poverty limit if you count everything, food, education, uh, electricity, fuel. So uh, you have a, a country that is going down fast. The World Bank has said this is the third worst depression in the last 150 years since the Great Depression that swept Europe at the time of industrialization. Uh, the solution economically is not that complicated. Yes, there's a loss of a lot of wealth that's been frittered away by the banks and political leaders and ineffective governments. But the recapitalization of Lebanon could be done in a country that still owns the vast majority of its public resources, but you have completely amoral, irresponsible leaders who are unwilling to make the difficult decisions to sit down and compromise and work with the World Bank and IMF. And even more important than that, get a safety net for the people, at least health, food, medicine. Yeah, I mean, are things better now, four weeks in? Um, well, we have fuel. I don't think that they will risk our naming names because I was clear that that memo went out in the name of our communications department. The next time there's a crisis, it'll have my signature and I'll name names and we're not afraid of these guys. Yeah, no, I think actually I saw the, uh, I actually saw the plea uh, from uh, the AUB. Um, I remember, I forgot the date, it was August 14th. Uh, I saw that um, and I think it was signed by the Office of Communication. Um, that was August 14th, yeah. Uh, and we're taping this today. Uh, I know it's going to air in October 2021. We're taping this on September 7th. Um, well, I, I mean, I certainly hope that, uh, I mean, I know. Do you think that some lives were lost because of this? these leaders um, completely being incompetent? Unquestionably. I mean, I think you think, you, you, you know, people who not so much at AUBMC, but in the periphery of Lebanon, in, in cities outside of Beirut, people not having medicines, uh, people with intractable fevers developing major seizures because they couldn't even get Tylenol or ibuprofen, uh, people not getting insulin. Yes, lives were lost while these folks were clowning around. No doubt. I do think, I do think, I just want to make clear that at least for me, I'm confident that what they're doing is making themselves irrelevant. You're seeing the world, you know, the global community, uh, UNESCO, uh, UNIFIL, other countries stepping up and providing assistance. The Lebanese American diaspora, the AUB uh, alumni, the folks from Syria and Palestine and Iraq and Jordan who have deep connections to this country from all over the world, to this university, providing charitable assistance. But that's no way to run a country, uh, much less a university. Um, Fadlo, it's uh, in the last just few minutes, just a quick thing. I mean, you mentioned a lot about the AUB being the, um, obviously the largest American university outside of the US, uh, not just uh, regionally, but globally. But when you look at, uh, I don't know if this is part of what you do, but I presume it is given the fact that you're the president of the university, when you try to look at the competitive landscape and who competes with AUB, for example, 
whether on the medical side or on the college side. But, uh, you know, there's, uh, I mean, do you look at uh, the Jordan Cancer Center? Do you look at, there's a lot of cancer centers in the Gulf right now, in the UAE, in Saudi Arabia, in Qatar. And they're all affiliated with prominent U.S. institutions like Cleveland Clinic, Mayo, Hopkins, uh, all of that stuff. How, when you look on your business hat and you're trying just to think of the competitive landscape, how do you view these other institutions that are kind of really being built pretty fast the way I hear? So, I mean, certainly resources make a difference, but I want to give a special shout out to Princess Rida, who oversees the King Hussein Cancer Center, uh, the Hikma Pharmaceuticals folks from Jordan and Said Darwaze, because they went out of their way to mobilize support for AUB. And they're, they're not a competitor. They're a partner of the King Hussein Cancer Center. We have a deep and strong relationship partnership with them. Uh, with regard to the Gulf countries, there are opportunities for partnerships there. Certainly there's competition. Uh, I regret the degree of cannibalization that some of the hospitals are doing for our nurses particularly, but some of our faculty. I, I don't think it helps the situation when they try to pick people off left, right, and center. But I think all is fair in love and war. I just think uh, you, uh, you know, this is not the ideal time to bring the health of the people of Lebanon to, their, to, to, to a worse place. Um, looking at quality of cancer care specifically, I would still say the three best cancer centers, uh, and I'm not talking about the African Arab countries, but you could probably factor one or two in in Egypt, uh, in, in the Arab world would probably be in some order AUB, the King Faisal Royal Specialty Hospital and the King Hussein Cancer Center. And we've retained the vast majority of our medical oncologists, quite a few of our surgical, best surgical oncologists, and most of our radiation oncologists, okay? Um, but without medications and supplies, we will certainly uh, be less competitive. Uh, but when I look at the landscape, there's a lot of push for quantity over quality in the Gulf. I think if you look at the uh, King Faisal Royal Specialty Hospital, it's an example of quality. They stuck with it and they're quite good at cancer and transplant. King Hussein Cancer Center, they're also very good at at uh, cancer and bone marrow transplant and other diseases. But this is the, the, the problem that you see in this part of the world is, uh, as you know, Shadi, from the US, great programs, great hospitals, great cancer centers take time to build and maintain and then build some more. And the question is, do the people building these institutions have the attention span and the mental toughness to stick with it? Uh, other than those three, I, I don't think there are any great cancer programs. And, I think editors. what you're doing is amazing. Just being, I mean, I think it's not easy to leave the U.S. with everything that you've accomplished and you were doing. And, and let's face it, I mean, living here is a little bit more comfortable than living in Beirut, um, just like day-to-day -day life. Uh, there's just easiness about it. And, and I think that, you know, going back is certainly um, something that I... I can't believe it was an easy decision. Uh, did anybody told you, what are you thinking, you're crazy? Sure, lots of people told me. My <laughs> first cousin, who's one of my closest friends in the world, believe, read my contract. You know, the university president contracts are notoriously interesting in that 
the board can and should be able to let you go at any minute. You know, if you go off the reservation, you can do a lot of damage. And, uh, but I think in general, people were excited for me. Look, this is a unique university. It's the, yeah, it's yeah. not the biggest, but it's the greatest American university beyond the shores. I'm not just talking about academic impact, but impact in society. I've enjoyed it. I enjoy what I do. And I think it's consistent with why you and I went into medicine. We went into medicine to serve those less fortunate. And that's a way where you go to sleep and you get up every day feeling, look, I did my best and I helped someone. I wasn't perfect. I made some mistakes. But the opportunity to serve those less fortunate is a wonderful way to live one's life. Absolutely. My last question to you is, well, two last questions. One is, do you have access to all of the new whistles and new drugs that we have here in the U.S.? I mean, if you need to get Pembro, is it easy to get Pembro? Not anymore. It was. It was very easy, okay, until the last, I would say, six, seven months, because the Lebanese pound lost uh, 93% of its value. And so the vast majority of the Lebanese are paying in Lebanese pounds, but the drugs cost a fortune. I think what we're going to have to do is to talk to the big boys and say, look, for the next four or five years, you can write off Lebanon as a profit center, but you shouldn't write it off as an opportunity to do great clinical research, to do great good, to treat cancer disparities, so that a country where median lifespan uh, roughly approximated that of the U.S. doesn't go to one of the worst in the world. And we know from the paper that came out last uh, summer in the New England Journal that therapy actually, imp- we now know that the targeted therapies and most likely we're going to see the immunotherapies are I- affecting lifespan, mortality. They're not just in for, for cancer, but five-year disease-free survival more and more people are alive because of these drugs, including in stage four disease. So I hope uh, we can get any kind of a government with a conscience here, and then we can come up with a reasonable plan that, and I'm sure the pharmaceutical companies and the charities would work with someone if they could find someone. We work with the Ministry of Health and with Pfizer uh, to import uh, several million vaccines. And so it can be done. Last word, what do you want to tell uh, uh, folks? I, I think a lot of Lebanese uh, students and fellows and physicians are going to listen to this podcast, including in Lebanon as well as um, uh, in the U.S. And um, I'll leave the last word uh, to you. Well, thank you, Shadi. Look, uh, I mean, what I want to say is if you enjoy helping people, being with people, and learning all the time, a career in academic medicine and in leadership is just wonderful. I've enjoyed uh, my career. I've enjoyed my opportunity to contribute. I would say I'm certainly past the two thirds mark in, in, in my career. I probably could do stuff for another decade, maybe not much longer, or probably wouldn't want to do, whether it's this or that. But everything is, is, is interesting when you're learning and you're helping people. And I wouldn't trade the opportunities I've had and taken. And I would encourage people to commit to something that means something to them and give it your best. Well, 
This was uh, such a pleasure to be with you today. And uh, I certainly look forward to seeing you in the US when you visit or in Beirut when I visit. So I look forward to it. The shawarma is on me if you come here. The, <laughs> the deep dish pizza is on you in Chicago. Deal? It's a deal. It's a deal. Stay safe, Shadi. Great being with you. Take care, Habibi. Thank you so much. Okay, folks, thank you so much for uh, tuning in. I hope you enjoyed listening to this episode as much as I enjoyed taping it. Uh, I learned so much uh, from uh, Dr. Khoury, and I really, uh, his remarkable journey is an inspiration probably to many of you who are listening to this show. Uh, I would uh, really like to know from you uh, your opinions about this episode and other episodes. And you could let me know that by direct messaging me on Twitter at Shadi Nabhan, that's at C-H-A-D-I-N-A-B-H-A-N, or by sending me an email to shadinabhan.oo at outlook.com, or certainly by checking my website, shadinabhan.com. Please don't forget to rate, subscribe, and review the podcast, as well as check out the YouTube channel, Chadi Nabhan and Healthcare Unfiltered. Subscribe and don't forget to hit the like button. And I'm going to leave you with a saying by Winston Churchill. If you're going through hell, keep going. Until next time, take care.